Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Have you ever felt like you've tried everything to heal from the pain of sexual abuse, and yet nothing seems to really be helping? Well, one of the reasons why most people struggle to break free from the pain of past child abuse is because the techniques out there are positioned as a one-size-fits-all answer. What I want you to know is that there are actually three distinct phases on the path to recovery. And I'd love to share with you about these phases, what issues you must resolve to move to the next phase, and what kinds of support you'll need in order to move forward as quickly and completely as possible. The road to recovery is much easier when you know what stage you're in and what to do next. So don't hesitate. Go to www.rachelgrantcoaching.com slash checklist and get your nine-page guide today. Now, on to our show. Welcome, everybody, to Beyond Surviving, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant, and for those of you who don't yet know me, I've been a sexual abuse recovery coach since 2007, and I'm the author of Beyond Surviving, the final stage of recovery from sexual abuse. You can learn more about me and the Beyond Surviving program at rachelgrantcoaching.com. Now, one of the things I love to do here on the podcast is highlight real-life survivors, people who have gone through this journey, who are here to tell their tale. And today we have with us Michelle, who's going to be sharing with us about her journey of becoming gradually more open and less ashamed about her childhood sexual abuse. So Michelle is a sociology professor in Toronto, Canada. Oh, Canada, welcome! <laughs> and a community organizer and a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. She is passionate, folks, about creating spaces for people to tell their stories in a way that is really healing and connecting. This is so critical because we know that oftentimes when um, survivor stories are told, it ends up being re-traumatizing, and that's something we're really going to explore and take a close look at today. 
She is also an avid member of a community organization called Authentic Relating. Ooh, I love the sound of that, which brings people together to speak their truth in ways that foster aliveness, personal integrity, and connection. So we are so lucky to have Michelle here today to share her journey and her experience with us. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Rachel. I'm so uh, grateful to be here. feels really like a gift for me. I love it. Um, and so when we first connected, when you reached out, I was super stoked to um, meet you and get to know you a little bit. And we began to kind of dialogue about how we might collaborate and come together. And we decided to have you on the podcast. And one of the things that I really just appreciated about that process with you is that you allowed yourself to really take some time and like sit with this opportunity and decide like, okay, do I want to do this? How do I want to do this? What requests mm -hmm. do I have? And um, we came along to the decision to have you on the podcast to share just your first name, to have you, it's somewhat anonymous. And I'd love you to just talk about that piece of the puzzle. This is a really great place to start because I think a lot of people want to share their story in a public way, but often have a lot of those questions coming up about like, well, how exposed am I going to be? And do I have to like tell all? And do I have to use my real name? So tell us a little bit about your decision to come on the show, but set those boundaries for yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a really great opportunity for me to think about my own black and white thinking, for one thing. Mm -hmm. So I know that black and white thinking is often a, a result of trauma and something that I definitely have for myself. But what I've learned so much in my healing process is that I don't have to think in black and white. So uh, I don't have to like completely reveal myself, completely become, um, lose all anonymity and confidentiality to tell my story so mm -hmm. the way I've been approaching it in my life in the last couple of years is to gradually become more and more comfortable with sharing more and more of myself over time um, so one of the reasons to remain to have my last name remain anonymous and, and to do only audio is that it's just that I'm at a place in my life where I feel like I do want to tell my story. It's such a, like I said, such a gift to tell my story, but I'm still doing it in incremental, in some ways, baby steps. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to, um, yeah, just like not say I have to do it all or I can't do it at all. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, this is such an important lesson, right? <laughs> and an important practice that you're cultivating. You're absolutely right that black and white thinking is one of those symptoms, one of those outcomes of abuse and trauma that so many of us find ourselves in. We do that in relationships, right? Like we've either got to be all in and it's got to be super deep and heavy and intense or it's not worth it, right? Um, the way that we think about ourselves and certainly when we think about opportunities. And I can certainly relate to this, you know, feeling of ending up missing out on things when I was stuck in that kind of thinking for exactly the reasons that you're talking about. So it's a beautiful moment of recognizing and noticing that we can actually speak up for ourselves, ask for needs, for our needs to be met, and that we can have that happen mm -hmm. <laughs> and still have opportunities um, that we want to take advantage of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing and I really so, love, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, for me, it's like a, each, each of the steps I take in my coming out more and more as a survivor is like a stepping stone to the next one. Right. So I, I imagine maybe someday I'll, you know, come out on national TV or something. I don't know. But yeah. I want to, yeah, just want to do it gradually. And this is one of the steps. This is so great. And, um, you know, that it's really about this is your story. This is your experience. So you are the curator of that experience. You get to decide when and where and how and to who. And we're going to be talking about that, I'm sure, a little bit more. What I um, am thinking about as I'm hearing your story is, you know, when I set out to do this work, I uh, really launched into it from the perspective of, okay, you know, I've gotten my shit together as much as any, you know, quote unquote, you know, <laughs> you can't because we're all imperfect. We're all human. Yeah, and yeah. I feel ready to share this with other people and see if it can make a difference for them. And it wasn't until I went to a party 
maybe a week or two after I really launched my business and said, okay, this is a thing that I'm doing. This is what I'm focusing on. And someone asked me, as they do at parties, right, what do you do? And I remember swallowing my throat and like, oh my gosh, just tightening into, because I realized in that moment, oh my gosh, right? Like my work now is yeah. an immediate moment of disclosure. Like as soon nice. as I say, I work with survivors of childhood sexual abuse, it's like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> you know, like there's this whole, like you can just see it on people's faces. And I hadn't fully, I think Michelle considered, um, how coming out I really was and how much mm -hmm. I was going to be doing that, you know, again and again and again in both these mm -hmm. professional ways, but also in these kind of social, um, personal ways. Um, luckily, it's been a really wonderful experience. But uh, I guess I share that just to say that we all find ourselves on this path of figuring out when and how and who. And sometimes mm -hmm. we get surprised by life and we find ourselves in moments of sharing that we weren't really fully thought out. And to my mind, that's a little bit about what we're talking about today. How can we be thoughtful? How can we be mindful about our story and when we share it? Um, so that story that I just shared is a little example of a, a first disclosure or a coming out moment, not my very, very first one, but an instance of, and I'd love to hear from you what you recall about your first experience where you felt like you were really coming out, you were really disclosing about your, your experience, and what was the fallout of that? What was the, the response or the reaction? Mm -hmm. I'd love to answer that. I just want to add one more piece to the last question, though, if I might, sure. um, because it feels like a really important part of my story. So I wanted to say, and even just following up on what you were saying about things that surprise us about coming out. For me, coming out is not only um, about me, it's about my family. So the abuse in my family was widespread. And so it wasn't only me, it was uh, several generations of many, many people. And so the short version of like the reason I bring that up in terms of coming out or like re remaining somewhat anonymous here is that um, the, the story of, so my grandfather is my abuser. Um, I think we share that. Is that right? right? Yeah. Um, and so um, the town where my grandfather lived, somehow that came out. I don't know the whole story, but it came out in the town and my family members were being publicly shamed about it. And so this is also part of what feels like my responsibility. Like I, I feel like I have, um, I, I not, when I tell my story, it's not only about me, mm -hmm. it's about everyone in the family yeah. who also experienced you. So I, I just want to be conscious of that. It's not only, I have responsibility for my story and a lot of other people in my family. And um, some of my family members have explicitly said, do not share this publicly. Mm, yeah. So, so when, you know, I feel okay doing that, not naming any names mm -hmm. and not sharing my last name, but um, I do feel like I want to also honor them. Yeah, I think this is a really good point that you're bringing forward. And I think where it can be a point of struggle, because finding that balance between who, how do we take care of others while also honoring ourselves in the midst mm -hmm. of that, again, this goes back to that not black or white, <laughs> either yeah, or thinking, exactly. but both and thinking. And I think that is one of the layers of complexity that um, impacts survivors when they're considering, do I tell my story? Who do I tell it to? So it's definitely something that we have to keep our eye on and try to navigate in this process for sure. Yeah. 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 And that, that connects directly to the, the question you're asking about disclosure. Mm -hmm. um, my disclosure story, my first disclosure was to my mom and it relates so well to what you just said around um, and what I was just saying around feeling like I had to protect other members of my family. So I disclosed to my mom when I was four, uh, 14 or 13 years old. And um, the, my abuser, my grandfather, is her father. Okay. And so um, I can still remember the, the exact scene. Like we were in my, um, my bedroom. I can remember the blue and white wallpaper, the Ralph Macchio poster on the wall. <laughs> 
So I was a little kid. Like when I yeah. think about that, I think about how young I was, you know, right. still having crushes on Ralph Macho. And um, I, I've never been that terrified in my life. I've done really terrifying things. And I can still remember how I, I thought I might, like my heart might beat completely out of my chest. I was so scared to tell her. Um, and in fact, a friend of mine, my first disclosure I forgot was to a friend of mine. And this friend of mine said, you should tell your mom. And I was like, I've been my whole life wanting to tell my mom and never had the courage and always felt like I, it would be too painful for my mom to hear. So yeah. part of me waiting that long was this feeling like I have to protect her. Yeah. Um, and I also realized that in having done some therapy around this recently, that my grandfather told me specifically, if you tell your mom, something horrible will happen. And I don't remember what he said, but like something really terrible will happen right. to your mom. Yeah. So I think that the, like, even though in the, um, my logical brain, I knew like nothing, nothing's going to happen just by my telling. I think because I was so young when my grandfather was telling me that those things, mm -hmm. that some part of my, uh, my body still thought that that was true. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So um, I disclosed to my mom at that time. Um, her reaction was, well, actually, I remember exactly, I couldn't even say the words, and she said it. I couldn't say it. She said, did your grandfather touch you? Mm. And I think I just burst into tears, and I thought, wow, she knows. How does she know? Um, and then I think I've heard lots of different survivor stories about their disclosing and some very awful stories about people not being believed. My mom believed me right away. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm so grateful for that. She was extremely supportive. She was extremely distraught. Like I could see how much pain she was in. And so that was helpful to me. I knew that I mattered in that way. Right. Um, and, and then she immediately I don't remember the chronology but soon after that after we had had some discussions in our family she went drove like the 12 hours to her hometown where my grandfather and grandmother lived and a lot of the other family and um and went to her siblings she has five siblings and said look this happened to Michelle Maybe it also happened to her, my cousins. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And it turned out it had. It had happened to my cousins as well. And so that was um, like that piece of the story, my mom's reaction and immediately like going out into the world and doing something about it feels really and felt really supportive mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. So me right away. Like I said, she was so distraught. I could tell how much uh, she was worrying about the effects on me. Uh, and then immediately going. And then eventually, actually, it's a bit of a long story, but eventually they then confronted my mm -hmm. grandfather. Um, and I know that there was um, a lot of processing that was going on with my mom's generation, her and her five siblings, and then her father, who was the abuser. Um, so that part of the story was good. Mm. What I want to say is that like the flip side of that, um, or another piece of the story that made the disclosure was like, or maybe a, a little bit of a challenging part of the disclosure for me was that, so that happened. My mom went, they, that generation had a bunch of discussions around that. And then probably a couple years later in my mind, it's about five years later we started to go visit them again, like nothing had happened. Like my, my family would go and visit my grandfather and grandmother, like nothing had happened. Nobody ever talked about it again. Mm. I see that my mom's generation had the chance to talk about it, but I didn't. And my, my generation of the abused kids didn't have a chance to talk about it. And so it was as if every time I went there to visit them, I, I was put in the position of, of having to talk to my grandfather, having to be in the same mm. room as him. Um, 
And that was really, that was re-traumatizing to me, I think. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was again in the position where I didn't have the voice at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, like now I imagine myself in that position again and saying, just no, I'm not going to. No, gonna- <laughs> hell no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. Um, That's right. Wow. Rain, uh, I'll just wrap that story up a little bit by saying the refrain always was um we can't abandon your grandmother mm. so we have to keep seeing them yeah now yeah. i would have a very good argument against that to say right. our grandmother can come visit us exactly That's, right but i'm not gonna but that was you know that yeah. was their generation's way of dealing with it yeah Oh my gosh, your and my story, like they run so parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, I ha- There are so many similarities. When my mom happened to discover what my grandfather was doing, she just happened to see him abusing mm-hmm. me one day. Um, she went into action like right away, like get away from him, come here and got him out. He was living in our home, so got him out of our house right away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, similarly, like, okay, what can we get you some support? Can we get you into counseling? And I was really um, rebelling against that. I didn't want to talk to anyone about what was going on. And then, yeah, like after a couple of months, like six months or so passed, there's, you know, family reunion. And here we go, trotting off to the family reunion. And aunties and uncles who know what has happened are like, hey, go get your grandfather to do this or go check in on your grandfather to do that. I'm like, wow, like you are clueless. And I think a lot about like how just the lack of education and the lack of understanding about trauma um, in, in that generation and the how much resources and information they had available to them. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, on my, in my experience anyway, I don't think my people were being malicious, right? I think they just literally did not have the understanding of trauma to know that that was a problem. Yeah. Um, and what I really appreciate about your story, though, is um, I'm, I'm glad that you had that support and that positive reaction. I think we hear more often the stories where the child is blamed or not believed or yeah. dismissed because those stories are just so painful. So the vo- the stories where people are like, wow, I really had support. I really had care. My parents or whoever really jumped into action to take care of me and they believed me. We just don't get those stories as much. So I'm really glad, you know, to have that here. Um, Mm -hmm. from your experience. And so, you know, we have these moments and um, there's this interesting phrasing that we're kind of co-opting from the, you know, LGBTQ community about, you know, coming out. Um, But, you know, something I know as a bisexual woman is that there is this moment always of like, okay, when do I disclose that? Do I disclose that? And for my queer friends, it's like, this is a thing that we do over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it, There is a really beautiful parallel here with a survivor story. There's this experience that you have that you have to decide, you know, when do you share it? When do you not share it? And so in new relationships, new friendships, there's this question that's there, right? Do I come out to this person or do I not? So I'm curious just over the, you know, kind of briefly over the span of your experience in that process, what have been some of your other quote unquote coming out stories, um, mm-hmm. both personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first times after I talked to my mom about it that first time was telling some friends of mine in high school. So I must have been around 17, 18. I had my first boyfriend. And um, I think because um, because we were becoming physically intimate, there were things coming up for me and um, it made sense to me to, to have some kind of explanation for why these things were coming up for me. And so I don't remember exactly the chronology of what happened, but um, this is one of those examples of coming out that uh, didn't go so well in my memory. So I remember telling these friends in high school that I was a survivor, that I'd been abused by my my grandfather. And the response was like crickets. Mm. And now looking back, I think we were all just kids. These kids, nobody has education. You, You were talking about that before on how to deal with, you know, difficult things, what to say to friends who are in need and support. 
but especially in you know very traumatic, very hidden kind of um, tr trauma where there's a lot of shame in that yeah. kind of thing. Like so, that was in the '90s, and back then especially. Oh. Like now, there's a lot more tools, right? But in the 90s, <laughs> yeah. Um, especially nobody was talking about it, and so I remember the feeling. Well, first of all, I'll say that I, I now have just a lot of compassion for all of us back then, like me not being able to ask for what I needed yeah. and them having no idea. There was three of them having no idea what to say or how to support me. Right. So I remember feeling like that was worse, that like it was worse to get no support after having divulged so much of my story um, and having been so vulnerable and not having had any kind of um, way to connect through that vulnerability or visible support through the, through the disclosure. So it felt like a very big disappointment. And in some ways, I think it, that story, I use that story as a way to not tell my story later on in some way. Right, exactly. Oh, this is such a What's such an important point. Yeah. 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 You know, what I'm really present to as you're sharing that is is that clearly you've done work around these experiences because uh, for many, many people we have these moments where of disclosure where someone has said something stupid, right? <laughs> they've they've respond, responded without compassion. They yes. thought maybe they've gotten triggered, right? And you don't know that at the time, but you know, and then they do that, or they, you know, shove it off some way or dismiss it. And I think you're right that for so many of us that can leave this wounding and that can lead us into this story and this belief that, see, I shouldn't tell my story, yeah. people can't handle my story, um, whatever it might be. And then that locks us down. It shuts mm -hmm. off our access to our voice. And so when we can, as you're naming, like look back and have compassion, not to, not excusing, but just understanding, right? That sometimes people don't know how to respond. Sometimes people are malicious and are self-protective. But I would really argue that most of the time it's coming from a place of, I just don't know what to do in this yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah. It really feels like that in that case. Yeah. But luckily, I've had the chance over the years to have different situations of uh, of coming out, and I've gone to uh, a lot of support groups, like both for specifically for sexual abuse survivors and other kinds of support groups around relationship trauma and building relationship tools and things like that. Um, and uh, those have been really different because I've there were specific tools like in some of the support groups there are guidelines in place for everybody what's you know what's an appropriate response what do we all agree to here how can we express what we need and get what we need in response and things like that and so those experiences for me were really guidelines um, those um, guided and facilitated support group experiences were really guidelines for me when I later went to my friends um, mm -hmm. yeah. later in life and, and disclosed to them where there was no specific professional facilitator there, but I still could remember the tools that they used and said, yes. you know, I can ask specifically for what I need. Yes. People, um, here's some things you probably don't want to do that won't help, like give advice or tell me you know how I feel, or things like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and those were have been extremely, extremely beautiful experiences for me, where I was able to say what I needed and get the support that I wanted and, yeah. um, and change the story of what, you know, I originally started with. Exactly. Was, new evidence, new experience. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's oh, right. it's not necessarily a bad thing to tell my story. I'm, yeah. I can get the support that I need. So one thing that really stands out to me from what you shared, Michelle, that I believe absolutely contributed to those experiences of disclosure being powerful, being good experiences, is your level and capacity to ask for what you needed. Hmm. And the container that you set up for yourself by setting those boundaries ahead of time. And um, this is something that I work very specifically on with my clients is a, is a process 
of first of all, how do we determine and decide if it's time to have that conversation? Are we ready? And then how do we go about telling our story in such a way that we don't re-traumatize ourselves mm -hmm. or traumatize the person that we're asking or telling our story to? And how can we set our listener up? for success. Mm -hmm. Actually, do you have some say about that? And yeah. so exactly what you're saying about naming what you need, hey, don't say this to me, you know, all of that um, is just such wisdom um, in that practice. And so that brings me to this part of our conversation that's, I think, where most survivors get a little stuck and hung up. How do I even decide if it's time to tell? Hmm. Um, what is, how do I come to that decision? And I know that you recently broke the silence, um, about sexual abuse with your extended family. And I wonder if you can walk us a little bit through your process. What did you do to help you, um, determine that? Yes, now is the time and, and here's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. So I just want to, um, go back to the original story that I told at the beginning around that I, after I disclosed, um, maybe five years after when my mom's generation had a lot of discussion and they confronted my grandfather, but then maybe five years after that, until my grandfather died, whenever we visited him, uh, everyone pretended like nothing had happened. Nobody mentioned it out loud. Um, and so for me, breaking the silence in my family was not in, in that context. Um, the thing that I did recently, just a couple of weeks ago, actually, um, was I specifically asked those extended family members if we could have a conversation about the abuse that happened in the family. So that was in the context of everyone already knowing Right. Okay. That everyone already knowing because of what I had done when I was around 13. Right. So everyone knew that there was abuse. But what I wanted to initiate was more of an open acknowledging um, atmosphere rather yeah. than uh, um, let's just pretend this didn't happen. But that was the, the feeling that I got anyway. Oh. So for me, the way that I decided to do that was that um, I, I don't have the chance to visit that extended family very often. I should say that my grandfather passed away, so he's no longer in the picture, and that made a big difference in terms of um, just being able to visit my family without worrying about having to be in his presence. Um, but So I don't see this extended family very often. Uh, they have a, there's a family reunion that happens, once a year my mom this year asked me if i wanted to come to the family reunion typically uh, you know i haven't gone very often mm. and i felt into it this year when after doing so much personal growth in the last two years and i thought like do i what do i really want is there something like what's going on inside of me when i feel into do i want to go to this reunion mm. and i realized that um, there are two things going on. One is, uh, I don't feel like making small talk. I don't like small talk in general. But the, I think the other reason why that was such a big um, signal from my body, I was like, why do I hate small talk so much? What's the big deal about that? But I realized after thinking about it that that was, to me, the small talk was just another indication that we're not going to talk about this huge yeah, trauma. We're just going to talk about certain things. And I was yeah. like, we have to fucking talk about this trauma. It's uh, like, it was just such, so loud and clear to me that I didn't want to go again and pretend like nothing happened. I wanted to go and have an open conversation with people, like share my heart, share all the struggles I've been through, share as a way of, connecting with these family members that I felt very distanced from and thinking like I had had the experience of being in support groups where sharing our, our trauma and I knew that all my cousins had had similar traumas so I thought if I could like have a similar sort of experience with my cousins how beautiful would that be we never talked about it at all I've been in rooms with survivors strangers to me where we've had extremely beautiful 
meaningful connections through sharing our trauma. Um, and so I thought, that could happen with my cousins. And even more, because we were kids together and we had the same trauma and the same context. Right. Um, and so I decided to write my family a letter. This reunion was coming up. Um, there's like 20 people who are coming. Again, I was so scared because I thought, and I thought people might not like this. People might not want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But I knew that, that I could share my own desire to talk about it without demanding. With just say, this is what I'd like to do. No pressure if you don't want to do it. But if you do, you know, great. There's, you know, more than one of us maybe who would like to do this. So I wrote everybody a letter. Um, that, you know, made several drafts of the letter. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah, several drafts. Because the first one was just like spewing all of the right, things exactly. I've had all my life. Right, yeah. All the things right. I wanted to say to these people my entire life. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, the third draft was more like, okay, I'll leave some of the spewing to an in-person conversation if people agree to meet me in person. Um and anyway, so I sent this letter to everyone, just, you know, in, in using all the tools that I had learned around just stating my needs, not demanding that anyone respond, letting go of the outcome, mm -hmm. like knowing what I have control over, which is yeah. stating my own desire and trying to let go of whatever happened after that. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and yeah, it was really beautiful. Some the response was mixed. Mm -hmm. So some people's initial reaction is, I don't want to talk about this. I'm no longer going to come to the reunion because I was going to come, but now it's gonna. This is going to ruin the mood, so I don't want it to come anymore. Others people's response was extremely empathetic and saying, Yes, I'd love to talk about this. Um, so there were a lot of. Wow. A lot of different responses, mm -hmm. but in the end, there were, you know, we, I met up with, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, six or seven of my cousins and aunts and uncles, and we had the, one of the most beautiful conversations I've ever had. Wow. And, um, so powerful, Michelle. Yeah, it was such a beautiful experience. I dig that so much. Uh, yeah, you know, I think there there are so many layers of, of what you're doing in that process that I think are, are worth highlighting. So first of all, checking in and noticing where is my resistance coming from. So what is it about this experience that, that I'm bumping up against and getting curious about that and exploring it and noticing that, yeah, I, I don't necessarily want to just continue the way that we've been continuing which is to just walk around this experience you know and pretend it's not there but let's just name it get it on the table um, and then that is actually what creates the space to just move on right and um, the courage to sit down and to write out your thoughts and your feelings and yeah this is something I often share with my clients as well like your first round is going to be the spewing yeah. It's going to be the everything you've ever wanted to say um, piece, and that's important. We need to get those things expressed and named, but then we want to narrow in on what is the real heart of the matter and what is what are our requests and communicate it in a way that people can receive. And the process of getting those responses, you know, I think a big piece of that is then exactly being um, detached from First of all, taking responsibility for how people are responding, like those yeah. are your choices, that's in their bucket, it belongs to them. Um, and also being able to just hold space for your experience is, is really powerful. And the outcome of vulnerability, I mean, my goodness, folks, are y'all hearing this? Mm -hmm. This is such a critical, beautiful example of how we, when in a container, with thought, with preparation, we can create opportunities that are vulnerable, but that are also extremely healing and connecting. Um, which I know is something that you very much value, <laughs> Michelle, in the work that you do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And ultimately, I think the goal is to avoid re-traumatizing. You know, um, in, my, when, in my research and in my study as I was developing the Beyond Surviving program, everything that I was reading was in this vein of, like, you need to confront the abuser, you have to set them down and tell them what's so, and, you know, speak your mind. 
And that never sat well with me because first of all, it wasn't even an option for me. My grandfather had died as well. And I thought, so what does this mean? People who can't sit down with their abuser because the person's dead or it's not safe to do so, or they don't even know where the abuser is, can't heal. That doesn't make sense. Um, And I also just really noticed that from the stories I was hearing, people who were sitting down from this place of confrontation we're not having very good experiences, Mm -hmm. you know, because confrontation really leads us into this place of, I have to debate, I have to discount, I have to, I have to win what's, you know, um, I have to be very attached to how people respond to my story and my experience. Um, And so this new model of having a conversation is all about minimizing and reducing the risk Um, that we will end up having a bad experience (laughs) when we disclose our stories. Um, For you, do you have any particular tips or strategies or things that you would recommend that people keep in mind or do um, that are along those lines? Mm -hmm. Well, these are things that work for me. And one of the things that I want to say is that I'm sure people say, have said this a lot, but like, just because it works for me doesn't work for everyone necessarily. But here are some things that have worked for me. I love um, Brene Brown's expression that people have to earn the right to hear your story. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things. So for me, uh, one way to avoid re- being re-traumatized is the who, what you were saying earlier, and how, how like deciding the who, first of all. Who am I going to give the gift of my story? really mm-hmm. um because what a precious gift it is to someone else to be this vulnerable and share so much of your heart and your fear and your shame and all the stuff that comes up sure. in these stories um i've been on the other side of receiving other people's vulnerability and that's taught me so much about so when i think about my own experience being receiving somebody else's vulnerability and how precious and honored the precious that feels and how honored I feel then I think huh maybe other people hearing my story will also feel that that's such a gift right so yeah that's been a mistake that I've made before is sharing too early with people that I'm Um, I think that in the past I've often wanted to create connections through being vulnerable as opposed to waiting to trust a person before I'm vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to kind of force connection mm-hmm. by going, here's my story. Now right. we have to be connected. Yeah. Um, so now I don't do that. And I go, wait, okay, what has this person showed me that, um, how have they showed me that they're trustworthy? How do I feel in my body when I'm with them? Mm-hmm. Like, do I feel safe about telling this story? Um, so t- deciding the who and then listening to my body around who feels trustworthy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a big one. I, I think I mentioned before some of the setup, like setting up the container. So I've been really fortunate in being with this authentic relating community here, which you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, um, where I've learned so many different communication tools that have helped me enormously in my life. Um, and one of, that, one of those is um, to set up the idea, like I mentioned before, around probably you d- t- saying to the person who's receiving, if they don't already have this, these set of tools, you probably don't want to give me advice because that doesn't feel good when I tell you this. I'm not look, or maybe even just saying, I'm not looking for advice. Right. Here's what I'm looking for. What I really want is, or what would really feel supportive to me is, can you just sit with me while I'm feeling this extreme sadness? Can we sit here and cry together? Or can I cry while you sit and hold me or hold my hand? That's been extremely powerful powerful to me just to be can we sit together with this yeah Um, and so yeah I've been like I said fortunate that I have 
some friends who have been trained in, in these communication tools already, and so we have that shared context. Sure. Yeah. But I know that they're going to capacity. They know, yeah, that they know that they're not going. I know that they're not going to give advice. I know that they're going to be able to say, "Is there something you need in this moment?" Like specifically asking me what my needs are. That they'll be able to sit with me in with the feeling. Yeah. Um, I love that, Michelle. Thank you. Yeah, it's really a beautiful thing to think about. You know, the preparation piece uh, is is really critical. Um, I think there are there are kind of two two sides of this. There's the first of all, thinking through: Am I ready? Is it time to have the conversation? Mm. And then there's the piece of what do I want to communicate, and how do I communicate it in a way that's really safe and grounded and sets my listener up for success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Man, Michelle, what a beautiful um, journey you've had. I thank you so much for being here today and um, talking with us about this process of deciding to tell our stories, how we tell our stories, owning our stories. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I really also love this, um, what you've shared with us, which I totally agree with, that our story is a gift. And, yeah. you know, when we offer that to people, it creates not just healing for ourselves, but also healing for others. Absolutely. Do yeah. you have any final final words for our listeners today? Well, first of all, Rachel, I just want to say to you, thank you so much for having me and for, oh, wow. for creating you. spaces where we can have these conversations. That, like I said at the beginning, also feels like such a gift um, to be able to, you know, find our voice again, like you say so often, to find our voice. So. That feels so precious to me. Um, is there anything left to say to the listener? I don't know. I think this this the idea of following your body and listening to what um, what feels like it's coming up in the moment and in the this point in time as a need. For me, it's been expression because I've washed my feelings for so long around the abuse and held those in silence I'm in a place now where I want to express and so I feel this um, I'm looking for opportunities to express and so I guess um, yeah when I talk to other survivors my my question would be like what is your um, what is that value or that need that you're having right now that and um, like how can you um, get that more in your life that's what I'm doing for myself. And that feels, love that. feels beautiful. Feels so <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, we'll take some of that. I'm down with that. Beautiful. Tell people how they can connect with you if they want to continue the conversation. Well, I'd love for people to email me if they would like. I would be delighted to hear from anyone. Um, so my email address is weaving. Kawagoe. This is a city I used to live in. in Japan. <laughs> oh, got it. Okay. Yeah, leaving Kawagoe, and I'll spell that. Um, so it's leaving, like goodbye. L e a v i n g. Kawagoe. K a w a g o e at gmail.com. Awesome, Michelle. And I'll be sure to put that um, in our show notes as well so people can access that easily. Thank you again so much for being here and being my guest today. And thank you, everybody, for listening and tuning in and joining us. For those of you who've been listening today and are thinking that you would like some support around coming out, um, I do have a program, uh, Break the Silence Like a Badass. <laughs> and so if you'd like to get some support and guidance through that process, um, please send me an email at coach at rachelgrantcoaching.com. Just put breaking the silence in the subject line and ask to know a little bit more about this program and how I can support you in this process. We have a game plan strategy phone call, and then we have a conversation role play phone call. We do a follow-up after you've had a conversation to make sure that we can calm your nerves and make sure, you know, make sure you're doing okay and a, um, that comes before the, the conversation and then we do a decompression session afterwards to help you process and unpack what happened. So all of that's available. 
to you as a resource and support if you're out there and are ready to break the silence or come out with your story in any way. And also feel free to pop over to rachelgrantcoaching.com to learn more about sexual abuse recovery coaching and explore the other resources on the site. And please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, um, hit some stars, let us know what you think of us, leave some notes and come back next time because we have so much more to share. Until then, take good care of you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.